Now, it may be that thinking about solar geoengineering for some people should mean a permanent moratoria, and for other people, it should mean pathways towards deployment. I'm open-minded about what the right answer is, but I think it is one of the big climate policy instruments, and we won't do sensible policy if you pretend it's not there. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and the director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Just this month, the Earth Systems Research Laboratory of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, announced that it had received authorization to study what they characterized as Plan B for climate change, namely to examine the science behind what is typically called geoengineering, including the possibility of injecting particular aerosols into the stratosphere to help shade the Earth from sunlight. NOAA emphasized that this and other techniques of geoengineering are recommended in a forthcoming study from the National Academies titled Climate Intervention Strategies that Reflect Sunlight to Cool Earth. As I understand it, until now, neither Congress nor the administration has moved forward with such work, but NOAA pointed out to the press that, quote, the closest thing to testing is a Harvard University project called Stratosphere Controlled Perturbation Experiment. That project is co-directed by my guest today, David Keith, who also directs the closely related Solar Geoengineering Research Program at Harvard. David is the Gordon McKay Professor of Applied Physics at the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and a valued colleague of mine here at the Harvard Kennedy School where he's a professor of public policy. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about your current research and your thinking about geoengineering and, for that matter, climate change policy more broadly, I'd like to go back and sort of learn about how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And when I say go back, uh, I mean go way back. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, and I went to um, undergrad in Toronto, physics and philosophy, and then, then grad school at MIT. And before all of that, though, presumably you went through primary and high school in Canada then. Uh, mostly, yeah, Canada. I was in Britain a little bit, you but were mostly in Canada, yeah. And I, when, when you were in high school, so sort of what were you into? Were you a science geek or not yet? Well, among other things, I was actually dyslexic and slow to learn to read and write. So uh -huh. I'd say that um, you know, I, if, I wasn't one of those people who was a star in, in, in high school for sure. Uh, and I would say I loved doing outdoor stuff. So I was a... Um, uh, pretty active in doing mm -hmm. wilderness activities I and see. outdoor things. And my uh, father and stepmother were um, environmental professionals, and I did stuff with them a bit. I see. And then you said you went to for college to the University of Toronto? University of Toronto. That's and, right. And there you studied? Well, I came into physics mostly, but then I ended up taking some philosophy courses. They have a very strong department. Ian Hacking was teaching uh, history and philosophy of science. And so I really ended up, I forget if I got a double major, but I did quite a lot of philosophy courses as well. I wasn't actually that happy with the physics teaching, but I lucked into a laboratory job in um, a National Research Center in Ottawa with a, a guy called Paul Corkum. And in hindsight, I could not possibly have had a better advisor of all those kind of life-changing things. And um, so I worked for Paul for three summers in the end of high school, the beginning of undergrad. And that was really what 
got me going in physics. So that's interesting. Um, I had a path that was is vaguely similar. And then in college, I started out majoring in physics, actually astrophysics, but then evolved by the time I graduated in philosophy <laughs> instead. So I didn't stay with the physics as you did. Um, now, from there, did you go directly to graduate school or was, did you do some other things in between? I, I, um, I took a year off in between. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. I actually thought I might want to do be a mountain guide or something. Uh-huh. And I ended up getting this job working in the high Arctic, uh, just sort of as a field assistant in a camp way in the um, way north of the Arctic Circle. I could see on, you on as walruses. a mountain guide, definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so uh um, so I actually went 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 from from that experience to MIT, and I was climbing a lot that year, I guess. And now at MIT, uh, you were in experimental physics, physics generally. How how do, what's the right way to characterize it? E- experimental physics, and that, that's very much a craft, and it's very much, I mean, people do theory, but it's very much about kind of hands-on skills of doing things in the lab, and that's what I first learned under under Paul's apprenticeship, and then I'd say it, Paul's recommendation got me into this guy Dave Pritchard's group at, at MIT, and I was really lucky. I mean, those are two of the sort of biggest superstars they are. I think Dave's had four advisees who won Nobel Prizes. It was was an amazing group to be part of. So so that was a really, I really loved it. And I was a sort of short, fun PhD doing an exciting project. But even at the beginning, I remember even when I was admitted, in fact, I got that admission when I was in the high Arctic, I was pretty sure I didn't want to keep doing physics. I was Hmm. didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something that was more more policy relevant, more... um, more relevant to, to everyday life. But what was your dissertation on? Uh, I built the first what's called interferometer for atoms. So this Tell is, us. Uh, explain well, this to us. <laughs> so um, interferometer is something where a beam of, of, of light or a beam of electrons or a principal beam of trucks uh, is divided in a quantum sense into two beams that are then recombined and they okay. can interfere. And <clears throat> that was um, first done for light by Newton. And, uh, you know, it became in the rise of modern quantum mechanics around the First World War, it's clear that, that should be possible for, for matter. And uh, there were uh, interferometers demonstrated for neutrons and electrons in the uh, test my memory, the 60s, let's call it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, there was a bit of a race, I'd say, to, to do the first interferometer for an atom. And, and we, were the, we were the winners. And now you went from MIT after you got your degree. Did you go to NCAR or uh, sort of via Carnegie Mellon? So, okay. so, so. I, but I'd say the big uh, interaction was really here. So Ted Parson, who was yeah. uh, here at the Kennedy School, right. who was a student of of uh, Bill Clark's, Ted organized a group of um, grad students in between Harvard and MIT working on what we mostly call global change, basically climate policy. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that many of us were sort of a bit ahead of our professors and that it was a very active group of maybe 20 or so students between the two, very much split between science and social science. So a bunch of people from MIT meteorology and then a bunch of social scientists from both institutions weekly meetings and really engaged. And that was really what got me going on, on what I do now. And, and that was probably was within the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs? Or no? I'm well, thinking of Ted. Ted, Ted definitely led it. Um, yeah. But it was interesting that it wasn't, there was very little faculty involvement. I do dimly remember huh. that Bill Clark had somehow encouraged it. But this yeah. was a meeting of, of us as students. Right. And I do think it's fair to say, and I sometimes say this to young students now, this yeah. is a case where students sometimes get the message of what's important a little bit before the faculty do. And mm-hmm, so I'm not mm-hmm. saying that obviously there were faculty thinking about this, sure. but, but I think that group was more, right. in fact, dynamic and, and interested in climate than, than was the faculty. What years are we talking about I now? think from about a group probably formed about 88 uh-huh. or something uh-huh. up until, so I graduated and left in 91. I see. Yeah. Okay. And now 
you went then from that, where did you go next? So I actually, so during that, I actually wrote a first overview paper on solar geoengineering. Not that I was particularly enthusiastic, but nobody was working on it. And I thought it'd be interesting. There was sort of a hole in what that group was doing. And kind of on the basis of that, uh, I ended up um, being offered a postdoc with a guy called Hadi Dolladabadi. Yeah, this I group at, him. Yeah, and yeah. No, we're sort of family in it. Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, that's right, at Carnegie Mellon. And Carnegie Mellon had this um, uh, very unusual department of engineering and public policy, and they had won several of the biggest early grants from NSF social science to do kind of integrate assessment of, of, of climate change and built some of the, I think, early interesting integrated assessment models. And that was really the kind of intellectual core for me as a, as a faculty was that department, engineering and public policy. So by the time you were at Carnegie Mellon, were you really focusing on geoengineering or it was? Uh, no, geoengineering was sort of a side project. I'd say the main work I did early on at Car- Carnegie Mellon was working with Granger Morgan on a formal expert judgment protocol to mm-hmm. understand uncertainty and climate sensitivity. Right. Uh, and that was uh, turned out to be very influential. I think it's one of the most highly cited papers right. I've, I've been part of, and it helped mm-hmm. to, I think, push the IPCC process to think about uncertainty more seriously, and it's really led to a lot of changes. And that was really the early 90s, and then I did some work on um, the analytical methods for how to combine uncertainties and expert judgments. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of stuff on uncertainties in the energy systems. So I always kept some interest in solar geoengineering, but for the middle of that decade of the 90s, I was really doing um, electricity, um, electricity dispatch modeling, ah. uh, energy policy related stuff all connected right. to climate. Right. And then from there, you went to Calgary or am I missing something? No, from there, I came back here, actually. Okay. I was a I was a postdoc. I had an NSF Global Change Fellowship postdoc where I was one year at NCAR and then came uh, for one year of that postdoc to work for Jim Anderson at Harvard, oh. coming really back to the hard sciences, trying to uh, work with Jim to lead a climate effort in his group to try and build a, a satellite, ultimately, that would measure temperatures ac- accurately from space, which, quite shockingly, we basically don't do very well, even mm-hmm. now. And uh, so then I ended up spending five years or so at, at working as a postdoc for Jim, and it was really fun. I learned a lot of how to manage sort of big projects. We flew an instrument on what you call the, the ER-2, the U-2 aircraft, mm-hmm. a high-altitude, high-accuracy right. measurement. Um, and and we did actually put together a big satellite proposal. I even negotiated a launch contract. It it, it didn't fly, but I think it was influential. It so didn't that fly was, in yeah, various yeah. senses. <laughs> yeah, yes, it didn't didn't fly in either sense, but it was influential and interesting. So mm-hmm. yeah. Now and then from here, then you went. Then I went back to, Calgary, to Calgary. Yeah, or no, I guess not. Ah, it's complicated. Actually, no. Then I went back to Carnegie Mellon. Okay. So I got offered a faculty job at Carnegie Mellon. Uh huh. And I went back to Carnegie Mellon as faculty, but I'd always been adjunct faculty. So all during that time, I'd been kind of back to Carnegie mm-hmm, Mellon. I mm-hmm. think I was part of some of their NSF grants. I was publishing papers with them mm-hmm. on CO2 capture and storage and energy system and a, a geoengineering paper or two as well. So I did all that sort of, that was the policy side, if you like. Yes. And then I went there as a faculty and then from there to Calgary. So you're a full-time faculty at that point. Yes, at that's correct. CMU, then yeah. you go to Calgary. That's right. And at Calgary, what department were you in and what was sort of the scope of your yeah, work, your so teaching, your research? I was I was hired as part of a very ambitious effort to build up a major um, um, climate and energy policy effort. And the kind of, you know, in a university that's in the heart of the oil patch with, with potentially yeah. a lot of money and a lot of high-powered people. And I think it's kind of really a tragedy that didn't work because I think Canada needs that kind of analysis. 
and I think that analysis needs to be intimately you know, on the energy system side. You need to work with the industry. You know, if you're going to change it, you need to understand it. Sure. And there were some really thoughtful people who helped to drive it. Some other interesting people there. I was, you know, one of the leaders of that effort. Uh, but it failed. Um, I think it was actually technically pointed to chemical and petroleum engineering, but that's kind of irrelevant. What do you to, mean that it failed? In what sense? Uh, <laughs> um, more than you want to know, but let's just say that uh, one of the lead figures, I think, is now maybe in jail. And uh, I guess that would characterize a, that as a problem. Yeah, he was called Bruce Carson. He was the mm-hmm. lead insider to the former prime minister for for climate. And he, he didn't get in jail for anything that directly happened with that program, but he did manipulate some issues about kind of insider and industry access. I see. And there was money that flowed from an, uh, one of the big oil companies into um, into some policy work uh, at the university in a way that was kind of corrupt and hidden. And I ended up calling that out. And there was a uh-huh. pretty formal um, battle that played out on national media between me and the university president. Uh, so it was uh, it's sad. And basically, almost everybody who was there has now dissipated. This is a town that depends entirely on the oil patch. A thing like this needs to be delicately balanced. It needs to mm-hmm. be integrated enough into the, the real world of that politics that it can be useful. On the other hand, it can't be just the plaything of the oil patch is doing no good. It needs sure. to, I think, help Alberta think through seriously what its choices are over the next um, decades. And, and and my heart is still there in some ways. I mean, I love my job here, mm-hmm. but I live partly in Western Canada, right. and I care a lot about what happens to Alberta. And I think um, right now I think it's making some pretty thoughtless decisions about what that transition has to look like. So I, I, think, it, I think we need a thing like that because here we think a lot about global climate policy, and, you know, I'm completely in favor of very mm-hmm. radical policy that would actually um, put very high effective carbon prices on. Uh, and I think we have to do that. And we have to drive some of those fossil fuel businesses, well, all of them ultimately out of business. But um, I also have friends and brother-in-law and whatnot in, in Calgary. And the reality is that that, that, uh, that economy would be crushed. And those are real humans. Right. And you need to really think through what the policy could look like. So that sort of balanced perspective that you have, the incredible importance of climate change, and and certainly from your point of view, I've heard you talk about this before, of, you know, very aggressive carbon pricing, aggressive policies to deal with it, but balanced by recognizing that there is the human downside, whether or not it's Appalachian coal miners put out of work, or this time it's the oil patch in Alberta, that balance, there's a sense in which that would seem to go, be very consistent with, to correlate with attention to approaches such as geoengineering. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> I, I think it is coincidental. I would say okay. during the time I was there, I basically did almost no work and no public work on geoengineering. So the central concern about solar geoengineering is a concern about moral hazard or mitigation mm-hmm. threat. Basically the concern that yeah. the that you know forces that want to resist uh, um, resist emissions cuts, the oil patch, yeah. would, would seize on it as an excuse to, to further delay emissions. And so in a sense, actually, to the credit of some people in the oil patch, I interact with a lot of people right up to the CEO level in, in that world, and none of them really asked me much about it, and I never volunteered much or talked about it because I think it's really important that that work be mm-hmm. really separate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I understand and appreciate that. Yeah. So let, let's delve now into geoengineering, both your research and policy surrounding it and everything else. But what I'd like to do is to start out with asking you to offer us some simple definitions mm-hmm. because, you know, we've got thousands of listeners, but a lot of them probably are not familiar with geoengineering. So I, there, there are three terms and phrases that occur to me, and there may be others that you want yeah. to offer that it would be great to have definitions of. 
geoengineering, solar radiation management, and carbon removal. So let, let, let me try. I think there's two underlying things, and they have different names, but so one of those things is solar radiation modification, actually it's now the IPCC's formal term, okay. or solar geoengineering or solar climate intervention, and that thing is the idea that humans might deliberately alter the radiative balance of the Earth, say by putting aerosols in the stratosphere or some such, in a way that would offset some of the risks of accumulated carbon dioxide. And a general fact about that thing, which I'll keep calling solar geoengineering, but I'm not wedded to that, mm -hmm. uh, is that it's uh, all of those methods seem to be fundamentally high leverage in the sense that they're potentially very cheap to do, offer really hard governance challenges, mm -hmm. uh, offer potentially high risks, um, um, and, and offer the possibility of really, really substantial reduction also in climate risk over the century. So the other bucket is carbon removal, um, uh, which you could also call carbon geoengineering. Um, and, and it has a whole bunch of technologies inside it. But actually, I'd say carbon removal or negative emissions are, I'd say, becoming the, the standard terms there. And my view is that there's no particular relationship between those things. Mm -hmm. That is, if you step back and ask, what are the things that we do about climate? It's decarbonization or emissions cuts, most of all. It's carbon removal. It's solar geoengineering. We may or may not do it, but it's a thing we could do. And it's adaptation. So if you like, those are the, mm -hmm. the broad policy instruments. And I don't think carbon removal is particularly more related to solar geoengineering than it is to any of the others. Indeed, indeed, the opposite. I think, in fact, carbon removal is intimately tied to mitigation or to emissions cuts and hard to disentangle, whereas solar geoengineering really stands pretty separately for better or for worse. Now, when you use the phrase carbon removal or when you think about it, are you including what I would refer to, I guess, as carbon sequestration, like from afforestation, you know, trees, you know, expanding land use in terms of more trees growing, because that's carbon removal. But uh, you're yes, referring to something. No, I'm definitely including that. But, okay. but, but this language is very fuzzy. Yes. So what I would count as carbon removal is all the ways that we could potentially, for shorter long term, actually remove carbon from the atmosphere and put it in some kind of reservoir. So that absolutely includes okay. modification of trees or soils. Okay. It includes adding alkalinity to the ocean. It includes mechanical means of taking CO2 from the atmosphere and injecting it underground. But I think it actually doesn't include carbon sequestration from power plants. Right. So I think if you build a natural gas or that's coal Because that's sort of mitigation. Yeah, to sense. me, that's just another yes. way to right. make low-carbon electricity. So right. if you have a plant yeah. that takes in fossil fuels and sells electricity and puts the CO2 underground, that plant, you can, we can all argue about right. its costs and environmental risks, but fundamentally it's like wind or solar or nuclear, and it's what it's supplying to the economy is carbon-free electricity. And in fact, your research, in addition to a lot of work on geoengineering, has also included substantial work on carbon capture and storage, has it not? So I did, uh, about for about 10 years, especially during the 90s and early 2000s, lots of work on the policy and economics and regulatory policy of CO2 capture and storage in the power sector. Okay. So I did a whole lot. And then, uh, but I really haven't done that for a long time. And then pretty separately from that, while I was at University of Calgary, in fact, because things weren't going very well, and I since wasn't busy enough, I did found this company mm -hmm. called um, uh, Carbon Engineering, which develops technologies for direct air capture, for removing CO2 directly from the atmosphere and making a pure stream of CO2. And um, uh, that's been very exciting because, I mean, startups are high-risk things. They mostly fail. For the first five right. years I really ran it, it was sort of up to 10 or 15 people. It's now, we must be at close to 80 employees as of today, and we've raised more than $100 million or in the middle of trying to raise uh, sort of billion-class money for a, the first million-ton-a-year plant. Uh, but I'm 
pretty lightly involved. So, mm-hmm. you know, Harvard formally sets a limit of 20% external time, and right. I think I'm well under that. I'm somewhere, mm-hmm. I would say, between 10 and 15. I'm a board member, and I do technical work for them, but partly because of concerns about conflict of interest and also the sense that as a founder, it's you sort of have to be 100% in. Like, I mean, I could just quit the Harvard job and go back to do right. that, but I, I don't want to. I think what I'm doing here is more important, and, and I'm better at it. And I don't think I'm good at running or trying to run a company of that size. Tell me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that partly because of the fact that your private sector engagement is on this carbon removal yeah. company, that your scholarly research and your activity at Harvard has not included carbon removal policy or whatever. It's been focused on the solar radiation management, et cetera. Is it, that fair? It, very say? much, actually. Um, I'm I'm quite concerned about conflicts of interest, and I think academics sometimes aren't concerned enough, I mm-hmm. mean, especially in the biomedical fields. I think there's too many examples of people both being academic leaders mm-hmm. and having people, grad students, postdocs, in tight interaction with, with companies that are that mm-hmm. are that are you know, where they have a clear conflict. And so I pretty much decided when we founded Carbon Engineering to stop doing any academic work on okay. that topic. And so what I try and do, and it's it can't be perfect, so I, I definitely do no academic work at all on that topic. Of course, I'm involved in policy on the topic, but when I am involved, I try to be involved very clearly with a carbon engineering hat on. I see. So, I mean, carbon right. engineering, you know, like any company like that has lobbyists at this point. We're trying yeah. to push for policy in D.C. When I'm involved in that, I identify myself as carbon engineering. I make right. very clear to people that they should think of me as that and not a professor at Harvard. And I, so I really try and divide the two mm-hmm. things pretty sharply. Now, before we get into policy, I want to stay with your, your academic research. Yeah. And, you know, when you look back at your CV or try to in your mind's eye, look back at your long, long CV of scholarly publications, or for that matter, working papers, whether they're carbon capture and storage, geoengineering or whatever, what's some of the work? Like one item, if you can, you know, choose one of your children, as they say, can you choose one thing that you're most proud of? I think I'm most proud of work, you know, maybe starting with this big review article in Annual Reviews of of Energy Environment in 2000 in trying to really place solar geoengineering in a a kind of rational context inside climate science and policy. So my view is that, I mean, this is a thing where people have extremely strong opinions. And uh, I I don't think that solar geoengineering necessarily makes sense as policy. I think it might well make sense to, to ban it. Um, what I do think is that that it deserves serious study mm-hmm. and that we won't make better decisions about it by kind of maintaining a taboo where nobody talks or thinks about it. So, so I think a lot of my scholarship and my outreach activities have been around trying to, um, to get it taken seriously, to get it taken analytically seriously, to get climate model um, uh, analysis that actually gets at the core questions about risk and performance in a sensible way, mm-hmm. and to really think through how it might fit into um, sort of the the, the the economics of climate change, mm-hmm. in a sense, what optimal policy might look like if there mm-hmm. was any single global optimizer, which obviously right, we both know there is not. And, and, and then um, in the actual world <laughs> we live in, uh, to think a little bit about how you might manage um, the, the the divergence of interest between countries and actors. So, you know, I, I've done some work recently on thinking about how um, uh, indexed insurance schemes might be used between countries to um, uh, manage some of the unequal risks of solar geoengineering. So that's mm-hmm. kind of one example. It's very kind of right. applied policy. Um, and I've done some work technically on actually trying to figure out how to re- potentially reduce the risks of these technologies. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example... 
the possibility that we might use uh, calcium carbonate aerosol instead of sulfuric acid aerosol in the stratosphere, which could significantly reduce some risks. Now, you, you mentioned, I think you used the word controversy. Yeah. Um, and in fact, geoengineering has been certainly among certain uh, interest groups and certain individuals quite controversial. When I reflect back, when I'm interested if this resonates with you, when I reflect back, I remember a time when within the whole realm of climate change policy that talking about adaptation was considered to be inappropriate because that was throwing in the towel. Yeah. And then subsequent to that, maybe fast forward 10 years, I remember when carbon capture and storage was thought that was inappropriate. But now environmental advocacy groups you know, are doing work on that, NRDC, for example. And now we seem to be at that point with geoengineering. Is this likely to go through the same phases? I, I think so, although there's a way in which I think the end point is deeply different. But I think that that the analogy adaptation is really fair. Uh, uh, and, and, and some of the same people, I've actually ended up having a, a formal kind of, a, well, back and forth almost debate with Al Gore at, um, at the last of the weekends with Charlie Rose. Um, and, and Al Gore, of course, had been dead set against adaptation. Mm-hmm. People talk about it as the A word and used many of the same arguments that it was a distraction. And I think in hindsight, that was wrong and maybe even immoral in the sense that um, people, especially some of the poorest people, I, I've actually just come back from a trip in Bangladesh talking with some people who make kind of dollar a day incomes. Um, some of the poorest people surely deserve to do what they can and to get support in protecting themselves from climate risks. And um, uh, uh, even if that does uh, in some way reduce some political pressure to cut emissions, uh, that's not really a justification with withholding from them their ability to, to cut risks. Mm-hmm. And I think the big thing we've learned is it's both, that sensible climate policy is not one thing. And a kind of monomania around emissions cuts doesn't make sense. Of course we have to do emissions cuts. It's the single most important thing. If we don't do it, nothing else does it. Mm-hmm. But the idea that it's only emissions cuts, I think, is, is just now clearly wrong with respect to adaptation. And my guess is it will become clearly wrong with respect to at least thinking about solar geoengineering. I think what's less clear is whether we'll ever or should do it. My view is that that at this point, you simply can't talk sensibly about long-run climate policy unless you think about the, the, the big instruments, adaptation, I'd say mitigation broadly, including both emissions cuts and carbon removal, because they're kind of mm-hmm. linked, and solar geoengineering. Now, it may be that thinking about solar geoengineering for some people should mean a permanent moratoria, and for other people, it should mean pathways towards deployment. I'm open-minded about what the right answer is, but I think it is one of the big climate policy instruments, and we won't do sensible policy if you pretend it's not there. And it's certainly come much more into the mainstream, as you said, in terms of becoming more accepted that research is certainly warranted. I mean, research per se is going to lead to better decision-making down the line, not worse decision-making. And and you, I'll tell you, uh, it's not just because you're sitting here, but you deserve a tremendous amount of the credit for that having happened. Well, I mean, I guess the big question is, is it really? I mean, I sometimes do wake up at night and wonder whether there will be some huge disaster and it may not be something I should get credit for. But but, um, I do think it feels to me now like the there is a very quick shift in willingness to talk about mm-hmm. it. So, I mean, just anecdotally, I've come from meetings in New York City last week with uh, a group that is very engaged with the UN. And, you know, uh, Belgium is now serious about injecting this into some dialogue in the Security Council. Um, uh, you know, in the, in the last little while, I've had meetings with senior people and I call with 10 Downing Street. I've had meetings with senior people in Singapore, in uh, Canada, in Japan. Uh, and in Bangladesh mm-hmm. just in the last months. And I think the, the <clears throat> sense that uh, this is something that 
governments and big NGOs need to look at really feels very different than a year ago. And I think in a way that's healthy. So some of the, 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 the big parties that are engaging have a diversity of views, which is the right answer. But the idea that we just shouldn't talk about, it, I think, is disappearing pretty fast. And finally, if people want to find out more about your work, at Harvard and the project. I assume there's a, a website. How, what's the best guide to give them? So what we've set up at Harvard is, is in principle, a Harvard-wide program. So I raised money. We raised about $18.5 million. We'll get to 20. Uh, and the idea was to, to, to put that money not in my pocket, but in a uh, an entity that is called Harvard Solar Geoengineering Research Program, mm-hmm. which is a child of the um, Harvard University Center for the Environment. And mm-hmm. it's a committee of about five of us. And that committee really is the, the final power for giving away that money. And that money's flowed to lots of different groups around campus. And actually, we're very keen to make sure we fund some groups that have much more critical views. And we're doing a little bit of that now. We funded uh, several such. And and so that's the structure. And that overall program is at uh, um, geoengineering.environment.harvard.edu, if Good. I remember correctly. Okay. Yeah. But I suspect that even Googling Harvard Geoengineering will get one on the we'll website get you there very pretty quickly. quickly. Yeah, that's right. So um, thank you very much, David, Thanks for having a whole been lot. with us today. This Thanks. was just great. Our guest today has been David Keith. He is the Gordon McKay Professor of Applied Physics at the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and a professor of public policy here at the Harvard Kennedy School and the faculty director of Harvard's Solo Geoengineering Research Program. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.